beauty of our Savior, the beauty of heaven that's drawing our affections, and it places them amongst the domain of the angelic. What a privilege it is to sing. And Scripture demonstrates for us that worship, whether of song or of preaching, is priority. What is it? Yet sometimes we prioritize the work over the worship. We measure the activity over the adoration. And we may look to the very throne room of God to see the priorities of God in demonstration. Consider Isaiah 6. There Isaiah is having a vision. And we're introduced to an incredibly heaven, heavenly creature, an incredible heavenly creature called the seraphim. And Isaiah describes the angelic being this way in Isaiah 6:2. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now what do we notice? Six wings. Six, and, and yes, two of them are fashioned for work. Notice they are there for service and for activity. With two, he flew. But with four, four of his wings are dedicated to worship and to adoration. Do we see that? Two covering of the face, two covering of the feet. Let us draw from the example of heaven in our own lives and priorities. For every wing that we work and we serve with, may there be two that are dedicated to worship and to adoration of our Savior and King. Double, double, beloved, is the ratio of heaven's throne room. So what does that mean? That we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? Just the opposite. When you worship and when you adore with four, you will be faithful to fly with your two because there's still work to do. And speaking of work to do, I want to thank the men that have dedicated their last Saturdays to building the playground out back for our children. You flew with your two wings and we thank you. If you have yet to find your, a way to use your two wings, grab Mr. Grant, grab someone in leadership and find out where help is needed. God is doing much in our community. We need to be ready for that. With everyone adoring with their four and working with their two, we can accomplish all that God has called us to do. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began a, a very hard journey. Having left the upper room, Jesus with his eleven has departed out of the eastern gate. He's gone across the Kidron Valley to climb the Mount of Olives. And somewhere over that short distance, having crossed a creek still flowing from the winter rain, that remember was also downstream from the temple, meaning that creek was mixed with the blood of thousands of lambs sacrificed at the temple. Sometime between midnight and 1 or 2 a.m. as they crossed that valley, Jesus made a devastating prediction to his disciples. He tells them that they're all going to fall away, that they're all going to desert him. Now to read this interaction on its face last week, it would have been sorrowful. Using the analogy of sickness, the disciples were indeed weak. 
If we were to see their spirit man lying there in bed, they would have looked embattled and sick because they were. There was no denying the abandonment, the betrayal, and the fear that would come upon them, that they would act on their fear. And it all would run away from the master that they've walked with for three years now. But the name of our message last week was titled, Eclipsed by Glory. While the patient can lie there sick in bed, that's not half the story. And it's not the greater part of the story. If we grab our microscope, if we look closer, we will find something far greater occurring in that sickness. That a flurry of activity is happening in that body. Something is eclipsing their weakness and their sickness. There is a glory that is radiating. There is a grace that is greater. The antibodies are winning. They will and they are eclipsing the weakness. And as we drilled down, we saw incredible truths that, that caused our heart to soar, where the natural eye sought such tragedy in the master's prediction of the disciples succumbing to fear. We beheld God-sized truths in Jesus' prediction, a revealing of Jesus' omniscience, that he's all-knowing. We saw a validation of the continuity of Scripture, saying that those prophecies that are in the Old Testament that you think sound like me, they are me. In quoting Zechariah, the eclipsing of glory continued last week where we beheld who it was that was striking the shepherd and scattering the sheep. Zechariah 13.7 It was not a satanic horde. It was the sword of God the Father. And the more we dug into the weakness of his disciples, the more the glory began radiating out. We had layers upon layers of beauty amidst the fear and the darkness, amidst the fear and the pride of Peter. And that glory would triumph. The disciples were not left in that state. They would be fully restored. The book of Acts shows these very men turning the known world on its head. For the gospel, the glory was always greater. And so it is for those in Christ. What encouragement and what strength of heart we walked away with. If God began a good work in you, he will complete it. He will not let you go. Our failures will be eclipsed by his glory and for his glory. And that makes even the night seem like day for the Christian If we have failed, if we have missed the mark, if it has been our weakness that has defined us more than our faith in this season of your life, if we will look closer, we'll see the beauty. That failure will be eclipsed by glory. And in that, our hearts can sing once again. Well, today we enter into what we truly must call sacred ground in Scripture. Scenes like that of Moses before the burning bush, one almost wants to remove their sandals because of the enormity of what we're about to witness. Of course, every step down Passion Week feels like this. Every minute that we push closer to Calvary weighs heavier and heavier. Having climbed the Mount of Olives, it is that very weight that is going to drive our Savior to his knees in the dead of night. 
As an hour of spiritual darkness falls, Luke 22 tells us that Jesus will yet again, one more time, face the temptation that has been laid before him from the beginning, starting with Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Of course, the temptation being what? Go around the cross. Stop the cross. The drumbeat of all hell is to stop the cross. The last place Satan wanted Jesus was hanging on a wretched tree, reconciling sinful man to a holy God. Stop the cross. Do that. And hell, that eternal fire which was created for Satan and his fallen angels, Matthew 25, 41, would be populated with every image bearer ever born. Now and forever. Old Testament and new. You and me. Those are the stakes. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There are no other options. There is no plan B. Stop the cross. Stop the plan of God all the way from Genesis. If he's not crucified, then he cannot be raised. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul tells the Corinthian church, we are all still in our sins. Those are the stakes, even now, as the weight presses down. Within 13 hours or so of this moment, Christ will be on that cross. So we have an ocean of beauty and of pain, of great weightiness to swing, swim through this morning. So with that, let us look to our text of Gethsemane, beloved. Mark 14, 32 through 36. Mark 14, 32 through 36. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are indeed hallowed grounds of Scripture. Lord, we are not worthy to approach them, but you have given them to us. In all of your sovereignty and all of your perfection. Lord, that you've placed this treasure in an earthen vessel. Lord, that we might deliver it, that we might bask in it, that we might glory in it. Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you this morning for this word, for this text. We ask that you would guide it in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. When 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, we see there the anointing of a king in Bethlehem, King David. 
All throughout David's life, he's shown to be a type of Christ. David was a foreshadowing of Christ. He was a symbol of the coming Messiah. And just as David was the anointed king, Christ is the king of kings. David was born in Bethlehem. Christ was born in Bethlehem. David was a shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. David defeated Goliath. Christ also would defeat the great serpent of old. Fifteen times in the New Testament, Christ accepts the title, Son of David. And so our scene today was foreshadowed long ago. Our heaviness up the Mount of Olives does not begin with Jesus. It began with David. Looking to 2 Samuel 15, there's no need to turn there. We were actually in this chapter recently in another message talking about Ahithophel, David's advisor, if you'll recall. And in this chapter, we're in the throes of his son Absalom's conspiracy to rebellion, to overthrow David. His own flesh and blood turned against David and rallied nearly the entire nation against their king. With David having been betrayed by one closest to him and abandoned, his own nation over whom he was king, rejecting him with the leaders of that nation and his country wanting David dead. What did David do? 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered as he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Well, tonight, another king, a far greater king, will ascend the Mount of Olives once again in the dark of that night. And he will weep as such, be grieved as such, that blood will drip from his forehead. And those who would follow Jesus, just as those who followed David up the Mount of Olives, would also be greatly sorrowful. Let us open with our first verse to set our scene. Verse 32, verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Now pause there for a moment. Perhaps never in history has a place been so aptly and so appropriately named. Gethsemane translated means olive press. It was a garden outside the city walls where where all in the area could bring their picked olives to be squeezed and pressed until oil is extracted. No greater analogy could be chosen than the very name and purpose where our scene unfolds. For that is precisely what will happen to our Lord. He will be pressed like no one ever has in history. He will be squeezed until the precious oil of his blood comes from his pores. If you visit the site in Jerusalem today, as with most places, different groups can't agree on the exact spot, but there's one that seems to have the best evidence. And in that spot, they have olive trees planted that are very, very old. Not ones that would have been there when Christ was, but planted not long after. 
And it is a place of remarkable reflection. And we know that this was a place that Jesus and his disciples went to escape often the hustle of the city. John 18.2 tells us that Jesus often resorted there with his disciples. Much like the upper room, this garden must have belonged to a lover of our Lord, a follower of his. He gave it to Jesus whenever he needed, it seemed. That would be tonight. The fact that Jesus chose to go here on this of all nights not only mirrors the same overwhelming pain of David by our greater David, but it also demonstrates that Jesus is not hiding. His betrayer, Judas, would know without a doubt where Jesus would go. Going to Gethsemane ensured that Judas would be able to betray Jesus' location. And of course, Jesus knew this. Still, it is remarkable how many pivotal moments in human history have and will take place in a garden. Of course, our entire existence began in a garden. Sin and death entered into our world in a garden. We look forward to the end of Revelation. There, a new Jerusalem, a new garden city. But as Wearsby notes, quote, between the garden where man failed and the garden where God reigns is Gethsemane. The garden where Jesus accepted the cup from the Father's hand, close quote. And so it is that we enter our scene. Looking back to our text, last part of verse 32, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Now they've likely come to the wall of the garden at this point. There would have been a gate, an entrance of some kind, and if I had to guess, it was probably facing toward Jerusalem for reasons that we'll highlight later when Jesus is arrested. But he tells eight of his 11 to remain here at the gate. And we see the Lord give a command to these eight, bearing in mind that they know all that has been set up to this point. They know the tragic predictions. They know at this point about Judas. Jesus has reiterated that evil men are going to kill him. So you would think that your disciples would be on high alert. Thus, Jesus tells them to sit here. He didn't say sleep here. He said, sit here. And even more, if we rotate the gospel diamond to Luke's account, Jesus said something else at this moment, very instructive to the scene. Luke twenty-two forty. 40, when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And again in verse 46 of that same chapter, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Tempted to what? What is the temptation they are to ward off? Jesus says it twice to them. It must be important. What exactly is the temptation? We'll cover this in more detail in our next message, but the answer lies in the command. Sit, don't sleep. What's wrong with sleep? Nothing at all. 
But in this case, sleep is a symptom of the sin. Now you may recall we taught on this with the transfiguration of Christ. The same effect occurred. What were Peter and James and John doing at that scene on the mountain? They were sleeping. Why? Why were they sleeping? Despair. Fatalism. Confusion. Sleep is often the body's response to mental anguish. As far as they were concerned, their entire plan of Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth, everything that they had always looked and hoped for was fading away. With every passing minute, they could see the heaviness and the despair weighing upon the face of their master. It's a weight like they'd never seen before. And if the master is at this level, oh, we're done for. We're done for. I'm going to sleep because there's nothing left to pray for. All is lost. I'm confused. Jesus says we're all going to run away and abandon him. Peter, our leader, apparently is going to deny him multiple times. Judas, who we thought we knew. I can't believe it. Utter despair. Utter fatalism is creeping at their door and is overtaking them. The temptation is to take counsel of their fears, to abandon faith, to forget the words of your Lord. What? In three days I will rise again. I listen to myself instead. I'm taking counsel of myself. I'm subjecting God's words to my emotion instead of subjecting my emotions to God's word. That's the temptation. If they give into that, the likeliest response will be your body shutting down. Sleep. And we're not speculating or surmising here. Scripture tells us this is the case. In Luke's account, Luke twenty-two forty-five, and when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. From where does that temptation come? Where does it come from? Well, the most common place, our own flesh. James tells us, James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Truth be known that it is the most common source for our temptation. It's not demonic. It's our own flesh. But second, Satan is a tempter as well. And the Garden of Gethsemane has been classified as many things and couched many ways, one of which is the final temptation of Christ. And it is the darkest of ours to this point. And Satan certainly is in the mix, as we will see. In Luke's account, as Jesus is being arrested, he calls this their hour and the power of darkness. So we must understand these battle lines. We must understand the points of attack and the points of pain as Jesus pushes further into the garden. If we're to make a sense, make sense of an anguish so deep, we must understand why. And one of those pressures is indeed demonic. The final push 
to stop the cross is in a full court press. If this weight upon Jesus, this crushing, agonizing weight can overcome Jesus, he'll crumble. And the cross is stopped. Dr. John MacArthur, he describes this as, quote, the very culminating effort of Satan to keep Jesus from the cross. The experience in the garden, Satan's hope is, will drive Jesus to say to the Father, I can't do it. I can't do it. And if Satan succeeds in that, then hell is the only place People will live forever. Heaven will be empty. God's word will be untrue. And the promise of salvation a lie. Satan is the sovereign. If blood from Jesus' brow is to make sense, we must understand the attack that would draw such blood. The pressure that would squeeze out such oil. In the face In the face of that, Jesus does what he's always done. He does what he's always done. He does the most natural thing as breathing in and breathing out. He goes in to pray. If Christ, beloved, if one who could have called down 12 legions of angels to save him in that moment, Scripture tells us if his response is to pray, how much more ought we? Jesus is going into the garden now. He's taking three with him. Look with me to verses 33 and 34. 33 and 34, we'll look at them as one. And he took with him Peter and James and John. Now pause there for a brief moment. Of course, this is Jesus' inner circle. These are the ones that are present for Jesus' most intimate, his most impactful times of ministry, like the transfiguration. But the question floating on top is, why not leave them with the other weight? The other eight. Why in a time of such colossal weight, in a time that could even wrongly be perceived by by weakness, as weakness by external eyes, When we read the words of Jesus that are coming, the prayers of Jesus here in the garden, my instinct, if I were in such a state, would not be to have an audience. I'll take my prayer closet for this one. Thank you very much. Not Jesus. He takes the three with him. Jesus is saying, you need to understand this. You need to see this. You need to learn this. I'm not going to just tell you, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a front row seat to one of the most difficult struggles human flesh has ever seen. Ever. And we see this in our last part of verse 33. And began to be very distressed and troubled. Oh, beloved. As is so often the case, the English does not help us here at all particularly when it comes to the word distressed. Our Greek here is ekthombeo. And it means something has caused you to be amazed. It would be a feeling, an emotion, a state of being that has caused you to be stunned because you've never felt it before. Can you grasp that? And that is a key to understanding our entire scene 
and what Jesus is going through. It is key to entering into Jesus' mind and his heart as he presses deeper into the garden. Understand Ekthambeo. He is experiencing something completely new. He is having a feeling never known before. Say, how can that be? Don't we constantly highlight the omniscience of God? How can Jesus, God in human flesh, second person of the Trinity, not know something? Have not experienced something? What could be new to Jesus? What could cause God amazement? Ekthombeo. Grasp this as we develop it, and you will grasp the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gives us more color going deeper. There in verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep Watched. Jesus is becoming overwhelmed now, amazed now, astonished now, in unknown territory now. He's inexperienced here. Are those words you've ever heard associated with Jesus? It almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? How can this be? What has Jesus so grieved? It is nearly stopping his heart. Killing him. What so grieves our Savior now that at this very moment, Luke tells us that his subcutaneous capillaries are dilating and they're bursting, causing our Savior's sweat to be mixed with blood. And that, by the way, is not hyperbole by Luke. Luke was a physician. That's a real medical condition called hematridosis. So what is happening? Why this response? What has Jesus in such foreign territory, such amazed bewilderment, such sorrow to nearly stop his heart? Such anguish to burst his capillaries? Was it Judas and his betrayal? Was it that 11 of his very closest would abandon him? Was it being stripped and whipped to the point of innards falling out? Was it the anticipation of a grueling death? For us, that could certainly do it. But not for Jesus. All those events, the cruelty of it, the loneliness of it, the pain associated with it, Jesus has known all of these feelings since the beginning. Not only has he prophesied about them, but that demeanor of life was prophesied about him. In our corporate reading this morning, Isaiah described the coming Messiah. Oh, in the verse right before what we read this morning. What did he say? Isaiah 53, verse 3. Jesus describes, he describes Jesus' life. That he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did Jesus have moments of laughter and joviality in his life? Perhaps, but certainly they are never recorded in Scripture. That's the truth. So what we do know is this, that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. 
He knew and understood all these feelings. Betrayal, abandonment by friends, sorrow and grief for his coming, suffering and death. He lived with that all all the time. He understood it. But here, ekthombeo, he's amazed. He's having a new experience. This is not the sorrow or the grief he was well acquainted with. So what then has brought our Savior to such grief to stop his heart? That blood is mixed with his sweat. To understand Gethsemane, we must understand the nature of Christ. Christ has never known sin. Sin is a foreign alien substance, if you will. Christ has never known or experienced the wrath of God. Christ has never not been in perfect communion and fellowship with the Father. But now, Jesus is about to become the bearer of sin. Paul told the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus actually became sin itself. It does not mean that Jesus became a sinner. It does not mean that Jesus was guilty of sin now when sin was put upon him. Jesus did not become sin. He did not commit sin, nor was he now guilty of sin. I need to say that because our sin was put upon him. Ancient heresies already dealt with. But we must understand the glorious beauty of imputation. It's not a fancy word. It simply means that your sin was attributed to Christ on the cross. That's how God can forgive us. And then Christ's righteousness is now imputed. It is attributed back to us. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin-stained life. He sees the righteousness of his son. That's the beauty of imputation. That's the beauty of substitution. Christ's life for ours. Christ's perfect life for our sin-stained life. Christ's death where we deserve death. Our sin imputed to Christ, attributed to Christ, and in turn, His righteousness is imputed, is attributed to us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the glory of the gospel. But before all that can happen, here in the garden... Something will happen that has never happened in all eternity, throughout all time and space. Since before the created element of time was ever known, and eternity before Adam, the Trinity lived as the Godhead in perfect harmony with each other. They existed in complete satisfaction with one another in the Godhead for all eternity. What Jesus is about to experience is not only an alienation from the Father, the Father that Christ has known and enjoyed, that He has pre-existed with in perfect harmony, not for 33 years, but forever 
in complete eternity past. Not only is that fellowship about to break, but instead of being in perfect Trinitarian affection, Christ is now about to be the object of the wrath of God the Father. He is about to be crushed by the one he has coexisted in perfection with. Human minds cannot fathom this. We think we know what closeness is. That we understand love and affection as as best as we can as created humans. We could never understand the love between the Godhead. And now that is about to be systematically shattered. God the Father will forsake his Son. Jesus will drink the cup of wrath poured out upon him. And he will not just be forsaken, but he will be crushed by the Father. These are sensations, feelings, weights, that even in the fullness of divinity, Christ could have never known. Ekthombeo. And not only will he come into contact with sin, not simply being a witness to it, but being a bearer of it. Something which you have never known, but you are going to take upon yourself. Not a dose of wrath. You're going to take upon yourself an eternity's worth of wrath for the millions that God had and would save. But it's even more devastating than that. (laughs) Say, what could be more worse than an eternity of wrath poured out in a moment? Grab hold of the saints. Upon what vessel... Will this wrath be poured? If it was us, that would almost be easier. A sinful vessel being a cup to receive wrath. Sure, yes, yes. Sinful man is formed and fashioned to receive just such a thing. It's horrible, but quite natural, if you will. There are vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. The wrath pours perfectly upon the wicked, upon those who are haters of God and of his word. But Jesus, precious Savior, he does not even possess the capacity to sin. The fancy word for that is impeccability, meaning Jesus was not even capable of sinning. He did not even possess the capacity for it. That sin which carves out the vessel to receive justified wrath, Jesus did not even have. When Hebrews tells us that Christ has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, we have to understand what that means. Put on your thinking caps here, saints. Lean in. Lunch is coming. Christ was tempted. Tempted in every way. And because of that, he can sympathize with us. He knows what that is. But Christ's temptation is not like our temptation. When you or I are tempted, we are tempted at our point of weakness. 
We are assaulted by the lust of the flesh, by the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are drawn away, as James tells us, by our own flesh. We are tempted as ones with a capacity for sin. So our battle, our fight, is with these sinful impulses that reside within us. But Christ has no capacity for sin. There is nothing in his nature that is pulling him towards sin. It doesn't exist. So where you and I are tempted, we are tempted at our point of weakness. That is our suffering. That's our struggle. That's our battle. But Christ has no weakness. So his temptation is completely opposite of ours. Yes, he was tempted in all ways, just as we are. But the point of attack and the point of anguish is polar opposite. We are attacked in our weakness. Jesus has none. He was attacked in his holiness. Do we see the difference between the God-man suffering temptation and fallen man suffering temptation? All Jesus knows is perfection. All Jesus knows is holiness. For sin to be placed upon pure holiness is a revolting pressure that you or I could never understand. As beings that are only tempted in our weakness, Jesus was assaulted in his purity. If we want to be there with Jesus, as he collapses to pray, we must understand ekthombeo. We must understand the nature of Jesus' temptation versus ours. What's harder? Sin occurring in a vessel capable of sin, like you or I? Or an eternity of wrath, of being the bearer of sin, having never known it? Christ is holy, pure, undefiled, not even capable of sin. He's lived in perfection with the Father, both in eternity past and now on earth. Sin is alien to him. And now he's going to bear it all. All of our struggle with sin, as beings that are capable of that sin, could never understand the pain that nearly stopped our Savior's heart here in the garden. When Hebrews tells us that he has been tempted that he can sympathize with us. Oh, beloved. The writer of Hebrews is being generous. <laughs> he can more than sympathize with us. What he went through was far worse. You and I are merely sinful beings tempted to more sin. His is perfection, Trinitarian God perfection, assaulted by the sin of another. Behold the awful glory of Gethsemane. Back to our text. As Jesus is squeezed, we hear his prayer. His words to the Father, verse 35. Verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
saying, this is almost too much for me to bear. Not only is the element of sin, the reality of sin coming to bear upon perfection, but the reality of being separated from his father, even for a moment, coming to bear. But this is the final thrust of hell to accomplish its ultimate goal since Genesis. It's right here. Stop the cross. Beloved, if you want to see the genius of your enemy, here is the place. Satan is using the holiness of Jesus, his utter revulsion of sin, his perfect relationship with the Father, using that and using his hatred of sin, his intimacy with the Father, to get Jesus to step away from the only plan to save sinners. The temptation in this moment makes the wilderness temptation by Satan look like amateur hour. This was it. Super Bowl. Three seconds on the clock on the one-yard line. One snap for victory or pure defeat. This is the most powerful, the most demonic, the most forceful play he has. Every pressure, every force of hell now brought to bear. Go around the cross. Find another way. This path it is an assault on your holiness. The path, this path has the, the Father turning his face away from you. This path will lead you to scream on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's got to be a better way than this. This can't be right. Stop the cross. Temptation would have been pulsating at a fever pitch you and I could never understand. Only perfection could understand such an assault. This is what it looks like when hell itself goes nuclear. Look at the strategy. There are no higher stakes for all eternity, all wrapped into one moment of time. It wasn't on the cross. That's all the Father. That's the Father. Here, Satan gets his last go. If he's successful, you and I are not here today together with one another. We won't go enjoy fellowship lunch with each other afterwards because there would be nothing to fellowship about. We're all still in our sins. In that moment of pulsating temptation, in a way that we could never grasp, Jesus asks his Father, is there a way? Is there any way to save men without you turning your face from me? Can your bride, your church, your elect be saved by any other way than the cross? And in this he cries with a prayer that is hard to even say. It's one of the most beautiful, difficult verses in all scripture. Verse 36. Verse 36. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, 
yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus cries out in intimacy, Abba, Father. That's a title you and I might have true difficulty using. It's an Aramaic term. Really, it means Papa or Daddy. Like a child who is laid on the bosom of their father. Like a child who reaches up their hands in desperation for help. Oh, we may know something of intimacy as children of God. But when the second person of the Trinity says it, we can hardly comprehend. And what are Peter and James and John thinking as they hear this petition? Had they heard Jesus pray with this title of Abba before? I'll tell you what, as as good Jews, we don't even say his name. Jesus calls him Papa. And on this side of the resurrection in Gethsemane, that title is a prerogative of the divine. The veil isn't torn yet. Abba, Father, only Christ could use that in pure reverence. And he cries, all things are possible for you. You hold the world in your hand. It's all yours to do with whatever you please. And as your son that is holy and pure and blameless, is there another way that does not separate me from your face? Anything else could be done. Entire cosmoses could be created. Time itself could be altered. Any innumerable possibilities that comport with your character and your attributes within the perfect knowledge of God. Is there any other way? Understand, Harrison Hills, this is not a prayer of weakness. It is because of his holy perfection that he prays this prayer. My holiness does not want to bear sin. My holiness does not want separation from the Father that I've never experienced. Remove this cup from me, Abba Father. How can I drink the wrath of one whom I have loved above all else? How can I? And in a moment... At a crescendo pitch, as blood drips down our Savior's brow with every power of hell pulsating to stop the cross, it's done. In one beautiful, perfect sentence, it is done. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the yawning gates of hell groaned. Touchdown. Touchdown. Without this moment, we're not sitting here today. Perfect submission, perfect obedience. Behold your substitute, children of God. Being found in appearance as a man, Paul tells the Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, yet not what I will but what you will. He could have called down legions to rescue him from capture, to even take him down from the cross. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The path to the cross was the path of humiliation. 
But that humiliation gave way to glorification. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim and the seraphim. Let the earth quake. Being there in the garden with our Savior. Do you love him more than when you walked in this morning? That's the question. Have you seen his heart? I hope so. Shall our own lives resemble the submission of our Savior? I pray so. Our lives are not our own. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Because of Jesus' submission to the Father, we may come. If you have yet to come to Christ in repentance and faith, you have heard today, he submitted to the Father. You may come. The price has been paid. The debt has been canceled that stood against you. It was nailed to the cross. He bore the wrath. He took our shame. He overcame the garden. Now we might be called children of God. Now we might be free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we have been witnesses of the garden this morning. Lord, it is overwhelming for this preacher's heart. Lord, we thank you that you've preserved this telling for us. Lord, that we were able to join Peter, James, and John in your most intimate moment where you cried out to Abba, Father. We thank you for helping us to understand this, to know your heart. Lord, that we might love you more, and out of that love flows obedience in a life that's pleasing to you. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.